Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 24 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today is September 10, 2021. It's time for us to go to another part of our state, the Rio Grande Valley, also known as the San Luis Valley. If you've not been, it's an eye-opener. A huge swath of relatively flat ground, about 50 miles wide and 100 miles long. It is surrounded by mountains on three sides, the San Juans on the west, Pancha Pass to the north, and the Sangre de Cristo Mountains on the east. The south just drifts into New Mexico. You probably know that Sangre de Cristo means blood of Christ. They were named by a Spanish explorer in 1719 after he saw the reddish hue of the snowy peaks at sunrise. At the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains is the Great Sand Dunes National Park. It's a must-see in Colorado. How can there be millions and millions of tons of sand surrounded by mountains? This is not desert country, but it sure looks like the sands of the Sahara. Although we are here to talk about water, the dunes are such an unusual geologic phenomenon, I want you to see them. You'll be way impressed. Back to water and irrigated agriculture. The irrigated area begins west of the sand dunes. The San Luis Valley is one of the oldest agricultural areas in Colorado. The first surface water right in Colorado, appropriated in 1852, is the People's Ditch, near the town of San Luis. With a series of community irrigation canals called Asequias, Hispanic settlers soon started growing food in the high desert with water from the Conejos, Rio Grande, Alamosa, Culebra, San Luis, Saguach, Carnero, and Tranchera, among other rivers and creeks. By the 1870s, as much as 50,000 acres in the San Luis Valley was irrigated. After the arrival of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, that number soared to 400,000 acres by the 1880s. By 1900, demand for water in several valley streams had already outstripped the natural supply. The climate of the San Luis Valley is arid, and a successful agricultural economy would not be possible without irrigation. Farmers responded by building reservoirs and especially digging wells. More and more water was being used and in demand. Past generations of farmers remember when the San Luis Valley brimmed with water. Along some creeks, they had to fill sandbags in the spring to protect farms. Tractors would easily get stuck in the mud, and groundwater could be reached by digging wells by hand because the valley's once abundant water table was so high. By about 1920, the San Luis Valley was home to at least 5,000 groundwater wells. The rush was on. Underground supplies seemed endless. Modern commercial farming exploded after the 1950s when economic development promoters invited production of potatoes and hay that led farmers to drill 6,000 wells and install 2,700 center pivots to irrigate 
120-acre crop circles, turning naturally soft-hued scrub terrain bright green. The good times could not last. All that pumping of groundwater was impacting surface water users with their senior water rights. It was also impacting the amount of water exiting the state in the Rio Grande River. Colorado entered a compact with New Mexico and Texas in 1938 to equitably apportion the waters of the Rio Grande Basin. There is a complicated formula to determine how much water is to be delivered from Colorado across the state line. I have not been able to get an average number, but I'm sure it's greater than zero. Because of a lawsuit to honor the compact, and for other reasons, in 1972, Colorado water officials ordered a moratorium on construction of new wells in most of the valley, and then ended new appropriations of groundwater in the rest of the valley in 1981, which was one of the worst snowpack years on record, with just 11% of normal on May 1. Luckily, that one terrible year of drought in 1981 was followed by six successive years of some of the best snowpacks in the recorded history of the Rio Grande Basin. From 1982 to 1987, few worried much about groundwater because the rivers were flooding. It seemed they were on a boom and bust water cycle. Another run of giant snowpacks in the mid-1990s helped to keep the pressure off groundwater pumping. The mid-1990s seemed to have been the last good years for water. I think we've all heard that potatoes are a cash crop and grow well here. The San Luis Valley is the nation's number five producer of potatoes behind Idaho, Washington, Wisconsin, and Oregon. The valley is also a leading supplier of quinoa and alfalfa hay. All these crops need water. Average annual precipitation on the valley floor is 7 to 10 inches. But potatoes, for example, need an additional 14 to 17 inches of irrigation water during the growing season. Alfalfa hay, the valley's top crop by acreage, requires up to 24 inches for a crop. There is not enough surface water to irrigate all this acreage. For a long time now, farmers have turned to aquifers. There are two aquifers that lie beneath the valley floor. The unconfined aquifer is generally found within the first 100 feet of the surface. The confined aquifer is much deeper. Water there is trapped below a series of clay lenses deep beneath the valley floor. Without the water from these aquifers, the San Luis Valley would very likely not be the agricultural workhorse that we know today. Aquifers are key, particularly the unconfined. The water of the unconfined aquifer functions very much like surface water. This important commodity recharges from the mountains and the snow that brings down their runoff. The unconfined aquifer supplies 85% 
of agricultural well water. The confined aquifer lies beneath the unconfined aquifer. It is trapped water that normally does not reach a stream, sort of like water in a flat water balloon lying on a table. Until a hole, like a water well, is punched into it, the water stays there. There are clay layers that separate the aquifers. Water does not travel through clay because clay swells when in contact with water and seals off any contact between the confined aquifer and the unconfined aquifer. There are also differences in how each of these aquifers react. In addition, any well in the San Luis Valley inevitably impacts the river flow at some point. The aquifers and well levels have been monitored since 1970, when accurate measurements were first available. Since that time, there have been notable trends in the increase and decrease of the aquifer and well levels. The water table itself has seen a significant and steady decline partly due to the sheer number of wells that have been drilled. More water has been taken out than replaced. Pumping has drained underground water since 1976 by roughly 1 million acre feet, state records show. The worst decrease was the extreme drought that began in 2002. Historically speaking, Demand has simply outweighed supply. Ten of the past 11 years have delivered below average snowpacks for the upper Rio Grande Basin, with this year's snowpack measuring just 58% of normal at the key May 1 measurement. All but one of the main local reservoirs were less than half filled. Because of these factors, there are now big implications for the future. There are presently about 550,000 acres of irrigated ground in the valley. This adds up to an enormous thirst, but the valley can probably only support about 400,000 acres according to the Rio Grande Water Conservation District Manager, Cleve Simpson there may have to be a 20% decrease in agricultural land to restore aquifer levels, Simpson said. If the aquifer levels don't return to normal levels by 2030, the state government will issue cease and desist orders to stop wells in the valley from over-pumping. Some farmers could be driven out of business. Colorado Agricultural Commissioner Kate Greenberg said agriculture statewide is hurting and the San Luis Valley stands out as ground zero in a water squeeze due to slow snow, shrinking aquifers, drought, and competing demands from inside and outside the valley. Legal obligations to leave water for New Mexico and Texas compel cuts that complicates solutions, Greenberg said. Everyone who is working on this issue here in the Valley still hopes there's a way to thread the needle. Of course, the state of Colorado has to protect itself legally and uphold their agreements in the interstate compacts. 
How do we keep farmers and ranchers in business, keep agriculture as the driver of our economy, and use less water, she said. That will be hard. It seems to me that because of economics of water use, more farmers' children will leave agriculture and move to the cities. Here's a tremendously interesting statistic. According to state water engineers, San Luis Valley Agriculture uses 810,000 acre-feet of consumptive-use water per year to generate a gross domestic product of $3.3 billion, while Denver water uses about 250,000 acre-feet to supply 1.3 million people who generate a gross domestic product of $200 billion. In other words, Metro Denver requires only one-third as much water as the San Luis Valley to produce an economy 60 times greater. I am not advocated that we move water from any particular location. I just want to point out the staggering economic discrepancy between water use in ag versus water use in cities. This valley is a long way away from major metropolitan areas, and water being transferred out of the valley could create additional hardships for the already impoverished people here. Man, this is a tough situation. The San Luis Valley has long been known as the poorest region in the state. It is home to 46,000 residents. One of every four valley residents is impoverished, nearly double the statewide rate. Farming and ranching do offer jobs. According to a recent article in the Colorado Sun online newspaper, Farming and ranching account for $340 million of sales each year while providing 18% of the region's jobs. About one of every $3 of basic income in the San Luis Valley comes from agriculture. Only government jobs provide more employment. But all those jobs, all that money, hinge on one thing, an ample and dependable water supply. Against this stark backdrop of drought, three other vast changes loom. The biggest is a state court judgment that came after decades of excessive well pumping by valley farmers and ranchers. Local irrigators now must restore 400,000 acre-feet of water to the valley groundwater systems within 10 years. A second challenge is a plan by former Governor Bill Owens and a Metro Denver business group to pump and divert additional deep groundwater from the San Luis Valley to new buyers outside the San Luis Valley, likely on the Colorado Front Range. We'll try to talk about this plan in a future episode. And the third long-term issue is a forecast for flows to be reduced even further, perhaps as much as 30%, because of climate change, 
according to Colorado's Rio Grande implementation plan. Buffeted by drought, court orders, climate change, and front-range diversion plans, the water supply of the San Luis Valley faces pressure as never before. State Senator Cleve Simpson, also general manager of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District, said, Our demand for water has far exceeded our supply for years, and now our supply is in a 20-year downward trend. We keep facing drought after drought. The sense of urgency continues to build. The San Luis Valley is a long way from metropolitan areas scrounging for water. It seems to be a closed society centered around agriculture. This is only my opinion, but it is too far for many of the residents to seek other types of employment. I have read a lot about what farmers, ranchers are doing in the San Luis Valley to improve their water situation. It is terribly complicated and these guys seem more tied to each other than surface water users along the Platte. I hope to interview the Rio Grande Water Conservancy District to ask them to further explain how augmentation is working in the valley. Man, this is complicated. I wish the farmers there the best. I have tried to summarize some of the problems in the valley and why they exist. Publications such as the Colorado Sun, Alamosa Citizen, Colorado College's Water, Air, and Land website, Alamosa News, and the Denver Post have written articles which I relied on for information in this episode. I am grateful to those who do on-the-ground reporting so the rest of us can try to understand the complexities of the San Luis Valley. I love Colorado. I want to see it continue to prosper. It can only prosper with more water. Some of that can come from continued conservation, but most will probably come from reallocation of existing rights. The South Platte Valley is the logical place to get water for the Front Range area. And if I were a farmer in the South Platte Valley, I would cheer the metropolitan demand. It seems to be doubling the Farmer's 401k plan every four or five years. But with aquifer storage and recovery programs being promoted, the demand for farm waters may abate for some time. We'll see. Farmers love the refrain, What will we eat? Good question. But if some farms go out of production, it makes sense that the value of the products of the remaining farms will go up and the remaining farmers will make more money. As I have previously said, if only 15% of Colorado farmers' water goes to the cities, it doubles the city's supply. And the remaining 70% of the water will be used on farms whose products command a higher price. Isn't that the theory? Unless, of course, food comes in from areas where water is plentiful, such as the Midwest, the breadbasket of this country.
That's the way the free market system works. I say let it work. Just relax the rules on moving water around. Hopefully next time we interview the Rio Grande Water Conservancy District about augmentation and what they see happening in the San Luis Valley. No one wants to see a way of life destroyed or even altered, but things seem to be at a breaking point in the San Luis Valley. In the interim, I am going to listen to my favorite mountain stream. Come join me. Remember to tell your friends to learn more about water by listening to this podcast series. Okay, see you next time. <laughs>